This is a very special episode of the Rise Podcast because my husband wrote a book. I did write a book. And we really wanted you guys to be able to hear all about the book. And so we got special permission to share a chapter of the audiobook from Dave's new book. I'm going to stop saying the word book. Get out of your own way. And this is the very first, this is like, these are the first words of the book. The introductory chapter is the thing that we're going to play in full on this episode of the Rise podcast. And it feels fitting that we're doing this together because the first chapter is, is self-help for broken people. Oh my goodness. Because I got into personal development and started reading all these books and doing therapy and Dave was very uncomfortable with that. Like I know a lot of you have partners in your life who are not supportive of your growth. I thought you were getting into witchcraft. No, for real though. You didn't think I was. No, I didn't. But I was, I just didn't believe that growth was a thing that someone who wasn't in some ways broken reached for, which is like now sounds like such a crazy thing to think. Well, it's not crazy. It's probably just like a very, what do they call it? Fixed mindset. Oh, yeah. Like that you think there's sort of two people in the world, right? This is, is it Carol Dweck? Uh-huh. Yep. So there's a fixed mindset and growth mindset and fixed mindset, which Dave used to be, believed that everything that you're ever going to have, you're sort of born with. Yeah. And growth mindset, which is how I have been my whole life, is you can learn anything. You can you can create anything. You can whatever. And so when I started to really go on this journey for growth, he was like, what? Well, I mean, you identified that there were these tools that existed in the universe that could help you become better. And I thought someone who needed tools had to first admit that there was brokenness or not a like fully formed, perfect human that, you know, of course, like no one's perfect, but the idea of like needing to raise my hand and ask for help or finding a tool that I could apply to something that wasn't working in my life indicted me for not being awesome. And I did not like that idea. And as you started reaching for growth, it was something that I was very frustrated by. Uh, and at first, I think it was just that I didn't like the idea of you waking up early in the morning, but really I can like acknowledge now that I didn't like the idea of you potentially outgrowing me, which is, oh, such a crazy thing to, I mean, it's just like, it's a, it's a super trigger, right? I think it's a trigger if you are in a relationship with another person and they are in some ways sabotaging, unhappy with, rolling their eyes by, like groaning at you pursuing your greatness. It's probably because the Deep idea down, of them, yeah. right, like staying stuck and mediocre is something that threatens the possibility that you'll stop liking and loving them when you've evolved into the next like level of who you are. So if that sounds like you or you're just a creep and you want to creep on our relationship and how this exact scenario played out, please enjoy the introduction chapter to Dave Hollis's new book, Get Out of Your Own Way. A Skeptic's Guide to Growth and Fulfillment. I'm Rachel Hollis, and I've built a multi-million dollar media company with a high school diploma and the free information I found on the internet. In the 15 years that I've been building and scaling my company, I have become deeply passionate about helping other entrepreneurs to do the same. So each week, I'll be sharing tangible and tactical advice and inspiring interviews with the same intention 
These are the tools to change your life and your business. This is the Rise Podcast. I drank a handle of vodka in a day and a half by myself while I was supposed to be watching my kids. Hello? I know what you're thinking. What's a handle of vodka? That's not your first thought? Well, I'll tell you anyway. It's that pitcher they sell at Costco. 59.2 fluid ounces of roughly 40 shots. I drank all the vodka. All of it. Dad of the year. After working in entertainment for the last two decades in stints that saw me as tour manager for Beyonce while she was still a Destiny's child, launching TV shows for Fox, managing celebrity talent at an agency, and, most recently, working a 17-year gig at Disney as the head of sales for the film studio, I hit bottom. Despite being married to my best friend and having four healthy kids, the nice house, and the fast car, I found myself feeling stuck struggling. Reaching the low point all started when we decided to go on our most ambitious vacation ever. Yes, I'm going to be that guy who complains about a vacation. We rented a house for longer than we ever had before, 12 days in Hawaii. Grabbed our four kids, ages eight, nine, four, and four months, we are idiots, and we took off for paradise. On the flight, I was handed the near-final Word doc version of my wife's new book, Girl, Wash Your Face, getting my first glimpse into just how transparent and vulnerable Rachel had decided to be, and in the vanity alarm bells kind of way, just how many of my deepest insecurities would be exposed and how much of this everything's great trust-me veneer that I worked so hard to maintain would be challenged by her work. Also on that first day... Rachel got sick. And by that, I mean demons have inhabited her body. Should we go to the ER, let's set up the quarantine from E.T. kind of sick. So I did what any good dad and husband would do. I left her to rest. I called for a sitter to come and take care of the baby, grabbed this book of hers, and made a drink to enjoy by the pool while the boys played. My plan seemed so good. In a way that now I see as divine... This was a combo platter for the ages, a personal funk running into its second year, me being in the early days of therapy, more on that in a second, the decision to read a book that would trigger many of my insecurities that lived and breathed in the funk and the therapy, all while drinking a series of drinks, one of my issue avoidance specialties at this point. It all made for a very bad decision. I got to chapter five, the one that paints a less than ideal version of our early years and casts me in a light that I'm not proud of, and I poured less soda with the vodka when I made the next drink. By the time I got to the chapter about how much we struggled in our sex life, I stopped pouring soda at all. We were at the beginning of a 12-day vacation, and though Rachel got better on day three, I never recovered. I withdrew even more than I had already withdrawn. I got up in the morning, put on headphones. I went on long runs only to come back and keep those headphones on. And against the picturesque backdrop of Hawaiian perfection, I'd turn on a baseball video game that I'd brought and shut myself inside with another drink while my family 
enjoyed the beachfront. I showed up like an ass for the entirety of that vacation, spiraling to the lowest point of the valley I'd been headed down for quite some time. Rachel's a huge farmer market person. One morning, when she suggested that she was ready to explore the island and hit that market, I told her I was just going to chill at the house. That look on her face haunts my dreams. I want to make a joke about it here, but honestly, I'm sad for that dude not showing up for something so simple. It's embarrassing. It sucked. I knew it in the middle of it, knew it on the flight home, and really knew it when we got back and had to have the talk. There will be a handful of moments you look back on that you can assign meaning to for having had a role in fundamentally changing your life. When you met your partner, when you made the decision to take a job that ended up propelling you forward, etc. This talk, this decision we made that my wife made to wade into and have a hard, hard conversation about the trajectory of our lives, that was one of those moments for me. The day after Hawaii, we sat on our bed and Rachel worked against every ounce of muscle memory in her being. We're both recovering codependence, and confrontation on this scale isn't something either of us had mastered, but the stakes were too high to worry about that. This was going down. She laid it out in such simple terms, but those terms rocked me to my core. Quote, I'm going to reach for a better version of myself every day. I'm going to do it whether you decide to do it or not. Personal growth is one of the most important values in my life, so I'm going to pursue it every single day. Are you going to choose to grow every day, or are you going to tread water? If you aren't growing and I am, in three months, will we still have as much to talk about on date nights? In six months, will we still make out as often? In a year, will we still be going on dates? In three years... Will we still be married? End quote. Dagger to the heart. Someone should have yelled clear before she hit me with the paddles to the chest. It was that fast. Through a pool of I'm embarrassed, I'm sobbing this much tears, I realized it was up to me to make a choice. Did I want to grow or did I want to die? Did I want to rise to the level of who I knew I could be, who God made me to be, Did I want to have the marriage I wanted to have be the father I wanted to be? Of course I did. I always did. I'd lost my way, but now, now I knew it more clearly than ever. I knew it because I'd been forced for the first time to visualize the possible future that would result from my inaction. The future that sat in front of me if I didn't take this seriously. If I didn't take massive action to change what I was doing or not doing. And here's the thing, even though our most likely scenario was a world where I didn't make changes and simply lived in a marriage where we drifted apart, I still forced myself to imagine the absolute worst case in vivid detail because I needed the leverage of the most brutal things I could think of to get off my ass and move it off the mat. Not having my best friend by my side switching weekends with who had the kids once we separated, continuing to withdraw without my right hand there to hold up a mirror. In my visualization, I went super dark. I saw the overweight, unshaven, barely sober, lonely version of myself that could be if I didn't snap out of whatever it was that was holding me down. It made me sad. It made me angry. I felt shame and disappointment. 
It was just the kind of thing I needed. As the kids say, I was shook. Pain can be incredible leverage. The possibility of underutilizing your potential can be incredible leverage. Painful, obvious truth. The idea that you could be more, but got in your own way, should wake you up in the middle of the night. The idea that you could have been more and might look back at the end of your life with regret should be the single greatest motivator you can tap into. It seems cavalier to say that I did never think about Rachel and I getting divorced. I honestly hadn't. And I'm going to bet that most people don't give a ton of thought to it before they find themselves past a point of no return and wake up to see they become something irreconcilable. The notion of irreconcilable differences as a rationale for divorce was a term I'd heard but never given much thought to. It frankly seemed like a convenient term for people who didn't want to work hard enough on staying together. How naive of me. When I'm honest, I can see now that we were in the earliest stages of a path that leads down that irreconcilable road, where a couple doesn't know themselves anymore, doesn't share the same set of values for their life or their relationship. By grace, we were wading into confrontation, while reconciliation was still very much something we could accomplish together. Don't get me wrong. I'd been a good husband and father, but I'd careened into a slump that threatened everything I'd built, everything we'd built. And to put an even finer point on it, I'd been good, but my family deserved great. I'd been good, and they deserved exceptional. That vision of my future where I'm not as close to my wife and kids, that created urgency. It forced hard conversations with my wife. It required some hard looks in the mirror. Desperate times, desperate measures kind of stuff. And it opened me up to personal development as a thing I might need to get out of that rut. I could just puke thinking about it. Before I tell you what happened next, let's rewind a few months before Hawaii when Rachel took her entire team to a four-day personal development conference, a full-on immersion with all the music and fanfare. She'd been spending more and more time reading books about personal growth and was excited for what the opportunity to grow her team might look like in an event like this. I didn't get it. I didn't get the book she'd been reading or the impulse to attend a conference, so I eye-rolled behind her back and left her to live her best life while I continued to descend into my worst. I was suspicious of this kind of event and these kind of teachers, thinking them and their kind charlatans of sorts, peddling feel-good mysticism to weak souls. If I'm totally honest, I worried she'd come back talking about this cool cult we had to join. Fortunately for me, it was way worse. My wife came back on fire. She wanted to jump around and do all these inside baseball things that only people who'd been kidnapped for four days knew all about. And this thing I didn't get turned into this thing I didn't like. I didn't like that she was on fire. What a terrible thing to think, but I didn't. I didn't like it, not because I didn't want her to be her best self. I didn't like it because it exaggerated the distance between her now new better self and where I was, and that contrast felt worse now than it ever had. She started waking up at 5 a.m. Every morning, every single morning, what was in that Kool-Aid, and why in the world did it invade our home? I figured it would wear off, but it didn't. And in a move I give her credit for now, even though it really frustrated me, 
which I expressed with my exaggerated grunts when I'd roll over as she got up, she never stopped. She made a decision to keep doing what she knew was going to make her a better person tomorrow. And she did it even though it was bugging the crap out of me. That choice, the decision to unapologetically reach for a better version of herself, it had an effect on me over time. What started as anger, obviously in hindsight fueled by my insecurity that she might outgrow me if she continued to evolve, slowly gave way to curiosity. What the heck has gotten into her? How come she seems like she continues to grow into this better person? How can she keep doing so much better when I seem to keep doing so much worse? A conversation about going to therapy came out of these questions I started to ask, and I was finally willing to address the space between who I was and where I wanted to be, the space between Rachel growing and me dying. It was a catalyst for me to take a first step. As Robert Frost once put it, the only way out is through. As it turned out, I had to get into it and work through it if I was going to be able to get out of it. Robert Frost has been right about so many things, but this, it turns out, was his most poignant observation for my journey. If I was going to make it through all my crap, there was only one way. I had to wade through. Dang it, Robert Frost. So now, a few months removed from her team revival and about a month before Vodkaville in Hawaii, I start my time on a couch. For me, Getting unstuck took a lot of hard conversations and even more work. I learned how exhausting it is pretending like everything's great when it isn't. I learned that as much as it's possible to change your life for the better before any of that happens, you have to dig in to what is keeping you from a more exceptional life in the first place. You have to do the hard work of identifying and acknowledging the stories you tell yourself that control your life and keep you running in place. Starting therapy is hard. You're picking at scabs or looking at scars, maybe for the first time in a long time, that have long passed but maybe haven't totally been dealt with or healed. It's a bit raw. You're making yourself vulnerable. I'm doing a terrible job at selling therapy. It's work before it's extraordinary. And I was in the work phase. I had a really unfavorable outlook on this whole idea of therapy. I mean, if I went to the gym, I'd tell everyone I knew about it probably complain about how sore I was to remind everyone that I went. I'd even post videos of me swinging the battle ropes on Instagram to make sure me being at the gym was known to all. But therapy? I couldn't imagine bragging about therapy. I felt sorry for people who needed therapy. There's shame wrapped in needing it. At least there was for me. Who needs therapy? Before I went, I was positive I knew the answer. Crazy people. Weak people. Broken people. People who don't have supportive people in their lives. Women. Ladies, reading this. I, I was a caveman back then. But definitely not men. So much of what was holding me back at the time came from how I, and I think most of us, grew up believing men were supposed to be. How I showed up as a husband, father, employee, human, so much was connected in some way to societal expectations, either how manhood was modeled for me, or how being a man was taught to me by the world around me. This collection of experiences ran on a loop in my unconscious as a foundation for how to be, telling me exactly the type of manliness society calls for in defining masculinity according to the lauded models from my youth. This was an ideal I chased but never quite achieved. 
I'm the son of a contractor, and I can't nail two boards together to save my life. I don't know how to hunt or fish. I cry even thinking about the end of Rudy. Does that make me the right or wrong kind of man? Ironically, the one thing I knew about being a man was that real men had their lives together. Real men didn't need help. Real men certainly didn't need therapy. Newsflash, that's total crap. It just is. It's a lie based on expectations that have been reinforced generation to generation and hardwired into our brains. Failure makes us weak, or it's on us as men to fix everything, or vulnerability is for soft people. All our ideas we need to challenge and will in this book. I needed an interruption to my regularly scheduled programming, a departure from what society dictates as right and wrong. I needed a tune-up. If the warning lights on your car come on, you take it to a mechanic to get the car checked out. Well, the warning lights in my life have been flashing, and I'd been breaking the warning lights rather than finding a mechanic. Breaking those warning lights showed up for me as I regressed into a lesser version of myself by muting the things, do I dare call them feelings, bubbling up that I didn't like with headphones, long runs, full drinks, video games, and every other form of withdrawal. I'd become so good at pushing my feelings away that I didn't have a handle on what was actually wrong. This conversation on a couch, facilitated by a stranger whose only job was objectivity and lending an ear, rebuilt the warning light systems I'd suppressed and allowed me to have a fighting chance at addressing what was keeping me from the sense of fulfillment I was in search of. Here's the truth. You can stick to your guns and keep believing that real men don't dot dot dot, or you can be fulfilled. You can feel uncomfortable about asking for help, or you can grow. You can feel strange about letting your guard down and become a little vulnerable, or you can connect with the people you love on a level that actually matters. And so I got over myself and I saw a therapist. And yes, it was good. Yes, it was freaking weird and uncomfortable at first. I felt dread when I knew I was heading in, stumbled at first to be honest and open, had to get into a rhythm and out of my head and past the worry of what other people might think if they knew. And then a couple of sessions in, when I wasn't paying attention, it was suddenly no longer a negative thing. I even started looking forward to it. It was a space where I could sit with someone who didn't judge me, didn't correct me, didn't try and explain things, and frankly, didn't even at the beginning really try to fix anything. She listened, asked the right questions, and sat back as I threw up all the crap I'd been struggling with. What did we get into on that couch? The big questions that came up as I was crossing a crazy bridge, the bridge that was going from my 30s to my 40s. This is an interesting one for a man. At least it was for this man. 20 to 40 had more or less gone the way my 20-year-old self had imagined. I'd progressed well in my career, was married to my best friend, we had a thousand kids in a nice house, and to the outside world, in those carefully crafted Facebook posts, things were great. But somewhere in the midst of crossing that bridge, I started asking bigger questions. Those big existential questions you only usually ask at milestone birthdays. Though this time, they didn't last for just the birthday week. What am I on this planet for? What does it all mean? Is this really as good as it gets? What was the meaning of the last episode of Lost? Okay, there is no answer to the last question, but the others were coming up on a loop. And that loop was running at a time when my life had become a bit comfortable. Everything seemed good and fine, but I'd hit plateaus at work and in my personal life. I wasn't being challenged to do well in those spaces. And by that, I mean I'd stopped growing. I didn't identify it as that 
at the time. But looking back, the absence of growth lining up with my milestone 40th birthday was a catalyst for an awesome meltdown. I never thought a midlife crisis was a thing. For me, it was a thing. A gnarly, awesome, batten down the hatches kind of thing that wasn't as fun as it unfolded, but that produced some extraordinary fruit and a true appreciation of this notion of fueling yourself to grow. I mean, yes, it prompted me to ridiculously invest a couple of years and way too much money into a 1969 Ford Bronco that we now affectionately call the Incredible Hulk. But on a deeper level, the experience of going into that valley is something that I'm grateful for. Now that I'm climbing out, I realize... I'm climbing something that doesn't have a peak. I appreciate that it's a never-ending growth journey that I'm on. Therapy softened the soil. It took a thing that was taboo and turned it on its head, and in becoming a negative turned positive, opened me up to considering more in the personal development space. As it turned out, Rachel bought us tickets for a personal development conference before we went to Hawaii. I had just started going to therapy, was wading into my muck, and against my better judgment, I said yes to a thing that I knew had worked well for her, but that I was still unbelievably skeptical could work for me. I did it to make her happy. It still felt cheesy and cultish, and in some way an affront to church and the faith I grew up in being enough to make me whole, like seeking out a teacher who wasn't a pastor somehow marginalized my beliefs. Plus, I had grown up in the same society that most of you did. And I believe that self-help was for broken people. When I think about it now, it doesn't make a ton of sense. The stigma that existed in my mind or in society generally didn't apply to all men in all spaces. The greatest athletes in the world, they know they can always improve. They show up in the off-season to shoot free throws when no one else is in the arena and hit the weight room like it's their part-time job. And nobody thinks they're broken. It's the same for the ambitious young account exec who gets an MBA or the tradesman who picks up new skills on the job site. Being better and reaching for that better version of themselves is not something to be ashamed of. It gets them to a place where they score more points, earn more money, stay employed longer, have status and respect and all the things. So why didn't the same rules apply when it came to reaching for more internally? Working out a muscle in your arm doesn't imply that you had bad arms before they were strong. But for some reason, digging into why we do the things we do, how we're motivated, our habits, what we focus on, that work seems to call into question something at our core that defines us as either strong or weak, fit for more or destined for less, born with it or not. But can I let you all in on a little secret? All of us could benefit from reaching for more internally, from improving our mental health. All of us, even you. What I come to find is that no, self-help is not for broken people. I was struggling with brokenness, but not broken. In fact, none of us are truly broken. We can suffer through seasons of brokenness. We all have areas that are or have been fractured, but we are not broken in and of ourselves. If we know this bigger picture, we can admit the places where we are damaged and apply the salve to those wounds. And... Once we get out of our distressed places, self-help is also for whole and healed people who want a richer, fuller life. It took admitting where I was damaged and applying a salve to those wounds to see how it could help. That evidence revealed a huge gift. Once I was out of my rut, I saw that the continued application of those tools can also take a healthy version of me further than I've ever been before. 
as a husband, as a father, as a man. Now, here's the thing. If you're already super into personal development, you're up early with a meditation and writing in a gratitude journal and listening to every growth podcast, searching for meaning with Viktor Frankl, controlling your mindset and setting your intentions and all the rest, then none of this may be new. And I've got some better books from more accomplished authors in the self-help space I'd like to refer you to. But if you're thinking those guys are modern-day snake oil salesmen who get rich by convincing insecure people to fork over their cash, I get you. I used to be you. I'm writing this for the person who isn't feeling what they're selling. And I'm writing it because I was there just a moment ago and have been shocked by what's happened in a very short amount of time when I pushed aside my perceived notions of what self-help really means, who it's for, and what it can really do. For the last few years, I've benefited from investing in and reaching for a better version of myself using the tools I once made fun of. I've changed my entire life, left my job, moved my family from Los Angeles to Austin, found my purpose, lived more fully into and up to the potential that was given to me by my creator. And it wouldn't have happened if not for me saying yes to one thing I swore I'd never say yes to. I went to a personal development conference. Ugh. Rachel bought these tickets, and my attitude about going was reluctant and begrudging until we had our hard conversation after Hawaii. As I came out of it, I committed to going all in, to jumping up and down, to doing the meditation, and drinking all the Kool-Aid. It felt like a nice substitute for vodka, and frankly, I needed it to work if I was going to start making my way out of the muck I still felt stuck in, despite my taking my baby steps at therapy. About a week before the conference, I was out back with our boys, attending to one of our nightly rituals called Ask Any Question. It's where our boys ask mostly disgusting questions that I promise to answer honestly. Nothing was off the table, but that night my middle son Sawyer, who was seven at the time, asked an innocuous, what are you most afraid of? He was fishing for tarantulas or scorpions and out of my mouth fell, not living up to my potential. I'm tearing up a little bit right now as I'm writing that sentence. I don't even care if you judge me. I'd been living below my potential for such a long time, living into my very worst fear. So as Rachel and I took off for the conference, I had that conversation with a new loop running in my head. I had a mission. I was going to go to this stupid conference, and I was going to go all in. I was going to go do it and figure out how in the world I could live up to this high bar of living into the potential I'd been given. Yes, in the end, there were parts that were cheesy, and yes, I jumped up and down a lot, and yes, it was uncomfortable, and yes, it absolutely changed my life. There were plenty of things that weren't for me, but I have to give credit where credit is due. That conference fundamentally changed the way I think about self-help. It offered tools that allowed me to better understand why I do and feel the things I do. It shined a light on the lies I was believing that were holding me back, and it gave clarity on the roadmap I could follow if I wanted to take control of my life. I came back on fire. The same kind of fire that Rachel had come back with the first time around, I started getting up at 5 a.m., thinking differently about what I wanted in my life, how I was going to get there, and whose permission I needed to chase after it. I started asking questions about where else I might find fuel like the fuel I just received, and in doing so, started a journey that would introduce me to other people in this space. Authors and podcasts and couches that would change my thinking about what I could or couldn't be, how much was possible, 
and what societal constructs I needed to live inside of, or as it turned out for me, to live outside of to find fulfillment. But the biggest thing I learned during my time in self-help was the tie between growth and fulfillment. You can find things short-term to make you happy, but if you want to be truly fulfilled, you need to be growing. And in order to grow, you need to put in the time, do the work, and learn to kick the lies, putting limits on who and what you can be. In this book, we'll deconstruct the 20 lies that kept me stuck in the hopes that you might avoid my mistakes as you relate. In fact, we've just debunked the first one right here in this chapter, the lie that self-help is for broken people. Get Out of Your Own Way is a call to arms for anyone who's interested in a more fulfilled life, who along the way may have lost their why and now wonders how to unlock their potential or show up better for the ones they love. In doing the hard work of embracing growth and examining what lies I believed and why I believed them, I've become a better man for me and for the relationships that mean the most to me in my life. You can too. Make the choice to reach for more. The table is set. Now, let's get into the lies we all need to stop believing to get there. Hey guys, if you like this book, you can grab it literally anywhere. It's in physical and audio copies. There's a special edition at Target and Barnes and Noble. There's a special edition on Audible where I'm reading it. And then after I'm done reading it, Rachel and I have a conversation about it. Uh, But go pick this book up. It is literally available everywhere books are sold.